Welcome to the Words Matter Library. Welcome to the Words Matter Library. I'm Adam Levine. This week, as the country honors the life and legacy of the 41st President of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush, we are proud to add 41, A Portrait of My Father by George W. Bush to the Words Matter Library. The Audible edition has the added benefit of being read by the author himself. In the interest of full disclosure, I was honored and privileged to serve the author for two years as Assistant White House Press Secretary. So, much like the book itself, this episode doesn't pretend to be objective. On that note, let's listen to why the 43rd president decided to write this book. A few months after we left the White House, Laura and I invited Tim Lawson and his wife, Dory McCullough Lawson, to our ranch in Crawford, Texas. I had commissioned Tim, a real artist, not an amateur like me, to paint some scenes of the landscape we loved. As Tim observed the native prairie grasses and live oaks on the property, Dory and I talked about her father, David McCullough. I told her that a highlight of my presidency had been meeting her dad, the fine historian and Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer of John Adams. After updating me on her father's health and projects, Dory said, you should know that one of my father's great regrets in studying John Adams is there was no serious account of him by his son, John Quincy Adams. She knew, of course, my connection to John Quincy. We're the only sons of presidents who have served as presidents ourselves. For history's sake, she said, I think you should write a book about your father. At the time, I was working on a memoir of my own presidency, but Dory's idea planted a seed. Eventually, it sprouted into this book. Over the years, I suspect there will be many books analyzing George Herbert Walker Bush, the man, and his presidency. Some of those works may be objective. This one is not. This book is a love story, a personal portrait of the extraordinary man that I am blessed to call my dad. I don't purport to cover every aspect of his life or his years of public service. I do hope to show you why George H.W. Bush is a great president and an even better father. I loved writing this book. I hope you will enjoy listening to it. You've heard a lot this week about the Bushes being humble people, and that's true. There are a lot of stories here that have never been told before, and one of them is George W. Bush discussing his father's war service in detail. Of all the harrowing days that George H.W. Bush endured, none was more dramatic than September 2, 1944. The pilots in the squadron were up early for a briefing on their mission to take out the radio tower on the heavily fortified island of Chichijima. The structure was the most important communications node in the Bonin Islands, a key element in protecting the heart of the Japanese Empire. My father almost always flew with the same two crewmen, Gunner Leo Nadeau and radio man John Delaney. But that day, Lieutenant Junior Grade Ted White asked if he could serve as the gunner. White, the squadron's ordnance officer and a Yale alum, wanted to see the weapon system in action. Dad warned that it might be a rough trip. They had taken heavy fire over Chichijima the day before. White insisted, my father agreed, and the skipper, Lieutenant Don Melvin, approved. Around 7.15 a.m., four Avengers lifted off the sand jack and flew in formation toward Chichijima. Hellcat fighters covered them from above. My father's plane, with White as gunner, and Delaney manning the radio, was third in line to dive toward the target. As they began their descent, Japanese anti-aircraft guns on the island let loose. 
Tracer fire crossed the sky, and exploding shells filled the air with black smoke. All of a sudden, the Avengers shook hard and lurched forward. The plane had been hit. Smoke poured into the cockpit, and fire ran along the wings toward the fuel tanks. Dad was determined to complete the mission. He continued his 200-mile-an-hour dive, dropped his bombs, hit the target, and banked hard away from the island. He had hoped to make a water landing, but the plane was on fire and he was out of time. The only option was to bail out. Hit the silk, he shouted to his crewmen through the intercom. Then he turned the plane slightly to reduce pressure on the crew door. He assumed that Delaney and White had jumped. With seconds left, he unbuckled his harness, dove out of the cockpit, and pulled the ripcord on his parachute. The jump did not go as planned. My father gashed his head and tore his parachute on the tail of the plane. He hit the water hard and submerged. When he surfaced, his head was bleeding. He was vomiting from swallowing seawater, and he had been stung by a Portuguese man-of-war. He swam furiously away from the island, which was only a few miles away. Then he saw Doug West, one of his fellow Avenger pilots, tip his wings at an object in the water. It was an inflatable yellow life raft. One of the pilots had dropped it after they watched the plane crash. He climbed in and started paddling with his hands. Overhead, American pilots laid down withering fire to drive away a convoy of small boats that the Japanese had deployed to capture the downed flyer. For the next three hours, under the baking summer sun, he paddled against the current and prayed for rescue. Somehow he found the strength to keep going. I'll never know for sure what went through his mind. I think he must have thought back to the lessons his parents taught him. To try as hard as he could, never give up, and have faith that God would find a way to protect him. Here, 43 talks about his grandfather's reaction to fellow Republican Senator Joe McCarthy and the ideology known as McCarthyism. One of Press Bush's fellow senators was Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin. At the time, McCarthy was very popular with a certain segment of the country for his fervent anti-communism, which included making, often baseless, allegations that communists had infiltrated the top levels of government. During his 1952 campaign, my grandfather appeared at a campaign event with McCarthy. The other Republican candidates at the event lauded McCarthy, earning big cheers from the crowd. My grandfather considered McCarthy a demagogue and a bully. Prescott Bush was last to speak. While we admire his objectives in the fight against communism, he said, we have very considerable reservations concerning the methods which he sometimes employs. The crowd booed lustily, but my grandfather was not intimidated. He later rejected a campaign contribution from McCarthy. Years later, when I learned about my grandfather's stance, I admired his willingness to stand up to extremism. Boston Mayor James Michael Curley once summarized the philosophy of many politicians as, There go the people. I must follow them, for I am their leader. Prescott Bush had the courage and integrity to reject that view. Another issue that was particularly informative was listening to President Bush 43 talk about his dad's evolving views on civil rights in the 1960s. Vietnam changed his views. During his trip to the front lines of the war, my father saw black and white men risking their lives side by side. In April 1968, the House of Representatives took up the Fair Housing Act, which outlawed racial discrimination in selling, renting, or advertising residential property. My father understood the argument that the federal government should not be able to dictate the conditions for the use of private property. 
But in his heart, George Bush is a fair man. He could not imagine telling an African-American veteran that he wasn't allowed to buy a house for his family just because he was black. Dad's congressional district was nearly 90% white and heavily opposed to the open housing bill. He estimated that the letters to his office ran 30 to 1 against the legislation. But on April 10, 1968, George Bush voted in favor of the Fair Housing Act. He was one of only nine Texans to vote for the bill. The other 14 members of the Texas delegation, 13 Democrats and one Republican, opposed it. President Johnson signed the bill into law the next day. The reaction was swift and nasty. Dad's office received one angry phone call after the next, and at least one person threatened his life. The Congressional Postal Office later reported he received more mail than any member of Congress that year, much of it ranting against his vote on the open housing bill. When he went home to Houston the weekend after the vote, Dad confronted the issue head-on. He held a town hall meeting that was packed with hundreds of constituents. Many of them greeted their congressmen with catcalls and boos, much like the reaction when Press Bush had denounced McCarthy. What this bill did, he said, was to try to offer a promise or a hope, a realization of the American dream. He recounted his conversations with African-American soldiers in Vietnam, some of whom had told him about their desire to come home, get married, and buy a home. Somehow it seems fundamental, he said, that a man, if he has the money and the good character, should not have a door slammed in his face if he is a Negro or speaks with a Latin American accent. Negro was an accepted word at the time. He acknowledged the differences of opinion. I voted from conviction, he said. I knew it would be unpopular. I knew it would be emotional. But I did what I thought was right. What more can I tell you? To his amazement, the crowd gave him a standing ovation. Most of them probably didn't change their minds about the open housing bill, but they did change their minds about their congressman. They recognized that he had courage and that he was honest. In the fall of 1968, seven months after the open housing vote, George Bush ran for re-election unopposed. I followed the open housing debate, and I was very proud of my father. I admired the way he took a principled position, defended his decision, and stood up to the political mob, all the while maintaining his dignity. The lesson of his vote on the open housing bill is that although citizens might not agree with the decision you make, they appreciate a leader who is willing to make a tough decision. George Bush did that throughout his career. One of the things I learned in this book that I'd been completely unaware of was that being selected as vice president by Ronald Reagan came not only as a complete surprise to his son, George W. Bush, but to George H.W. Bush himself. I guess he didn't need to be vetted since he had recently been the director of the CIA. But even then, after losing to Ronald Reagan in the 1980 Republican primaries, H.W. was an unlikely choice. About seven weeks after the primaries ended, my parents attended the Republican National Convention in Detroit. The big question was whom Governor Reagan would pick as his running mate. The rumor swirling around the convention was that he was considering creating a co-presidency by selecting former President Gerald Ford. That idea made no sense to me. No former president had ever returned as vice president, and I did not see how the sitting president could agree to share power with their predecessor. Laura and I did not attend the convention. Instead, we went to New York, where I had meetings with investors to discuss the oil and gas exploration company that I had started in 1979. 
one of our friends in New York invited us to dinner at the 21 Club. Near the end of the meal, the maitre d' approached and said excitedly, Mr. Bush, there's something on the news that I think you'll want to see. He wheeled out a portable television, and Laura and I watched in shock as Leslie Stahl of CBS News announced to the nation that Ronald Reagan had picked George Bush as his running mate. We hurried back to the hotel, where I called my surprised but thrilled dad to congratulate him and booked a flight to Detroit. The vice presidential selection is the first big decision that a presidential nominee makes. Not surprisingly, I thought Ronald Reagan's choice sent all the right signals. The pick gave him a running mate with a foreign policy background, experience in Washington, and a reputation for loyalty. Once again, a political career that seemed lifeless had been reborn. The 1980 race proved to be a transformative election. The country was suffering from crippling unemployment, inflation, and interest rates. The Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan, and Iranian radicals had seized dozens of hostages from the American embassy. Jimmy Carter had few answers beyond lamenting the national malaise. The American people were ready for a change, and Ronald Reagan provided it. With a sunny optimism and confidence in the country, he gave Americans hope for a better future. On Election Day, Ronald Reagan took 44 states and 489 electoral votes, the most that any non-incumbent has ever received. Mother and Dad headed back to Washington, where George Bush would soon become the 43rd Vice President of the United States. As Vice President, 41 had a front-row seat and participated in some of the most transformative political moments of the second half of the 20th century. His election as the 41st President of the United States coincided with the end of the Cold War. George H.W. will be treated kindly by history for many things, not the least of which was presiding over the orderly and peaceful transition into the post-Cold War world. But the American people in 1992 would not treat him so kindly. Here, 43 describes 41's last campaign. After voting in Houston, he and mother camped out at the Houstonian Hotel, where our extended family had gathered. When campaign manager Bob Teeter called me with the first round of exit polls, I knew that it was going to be a tough night. When he called back with the second round, I knew it was over. I went to Mother and Dad's hotel suite. They were the only two in the room. How's it going, son? He asked cheerfully. Not so good, I said gently. The exit polls are in, and it looks like you're going to lose. He became very quiet. It seemed like he was stealing himself for the disappointment ahead. He had done his best. He had given it his all. But this was not meant to be. After his decades of public service, eight years as vice president and four years as president, the American people had rejected George Bush. Of all the elections he had lost, there was no question that this one hurt the most. As always, Dad was gracious. He called Clinton shortly after the polls closed on the West Coast, conceded defeat, and gave a warm speech thanking his supporters and congratulating the president-elect. When the tally was complete, Bill Clinton won 43% of the vote. Dad took almost 38%, while Ross Perot claimed 19%. In all, nearly 20 million people had voted for Perot. There's no way to know how those 20 million would have voted in a two-man race. I believe then, and I still believe today, that if Ross Perot had not been on the ballot, George Bush would have won the 1992 election. I know that Dad felt the same way. He is not a man to hold grudges. Yet when asked about Perot in a documentary aired in 2012, 
Dad said, I think he cost me the election, and I don't like him. Interestingly, despite the 1992 campaign, I went on to become good friends with Ross Perot's son, Ross Jr., and with Bill Clinton. Of course, Perot alone was not to blame. After 12 years of George Bush's president and vice president, the American people were ready for a change. The baby boomer generation increasingly dominated the electorate, and Bill Clinton epitomized the fresh face that so many voters sought. And then there was the economy. Bill Clinton was wrong when he said that George Bush didn't get it or didn't care. Dad understood the economic anxiety facing the country. He had taken action to address it. And in 1993, the Commerce Department revised its estimates for the prior year. It turned out the economy grew in all four quarters of 1992, including a growth rate of 4.1% in the pivotal final quarter when the election was held. That growth laid the foundation for the economic boom of the 1990s, which was largely credited to Bill Clinton. In one of the ironies of history, Bill Clinton passed on to me an economy that appeared strong but was actually heading into recession. The lesson was that timing is an important part of politics, and by the time the facts about the economy came in, time had run out for George H.W. Bush. George W. Bush's decision in 1994 to run for governor of Texas took many by surprise, including his own mother. In the summer of 1993, I called my parents with some news. I'm going to run for governor of Texas. Mother's response was swift. You can't win against such a popular opponent, she blurted. Dad was quiet. I was not surprised that Dad did not have much to say. Throughout my life, he never tried to steer me in one direction or another. His approach to parenting was to instill values, set an example, and support us in whatever we chose to do. In spite of his silence on the matter, George Bush had a big influence on my decision to run for governor. Through his words and his life, he taught all his children the value of public service. By helping him over the years, I had learned a lot about campaigns. And by watching his presidency, I had learned that good policy is good politics, not the other way around. I had developed strong convictions about policy changes needed in Texas, especially in the areas of education, tort reform, welfare, and juvenile justice. The only question was whether the timing was right. Dad's defeat partially helped answer that question. Had he been reelected in 1992, I would not have run for governor in 1994. I was running against a popular incumbent, and as the son of a president, it would have been distracting to answer questions about whether I agreed with every decision that his administration made. I knew there was a chance that I would not succeed. As I saw it, I could either run and lose, in which case people would say what a lousy candidate, or I could run and win, in which case people would say what a lousy governor. But none of that matters if you have the unconditional love of a man you admire. And I admired George H.W. Bush above anyone else. As George W. went from governor of Texas to President Bush number 43, his dad was right there with him. Only two times in American history has a president been sworn in with both his parents on hand to witness the moment. The first came in 1961 when Joseph and Rose Kennedy watched their son take the oath of office from Chief Justice Earl Warren. The second came in 2001 when my parents attended my inauguration. I was comforted to know that mother and dad were sitting behind me as Chief Justice Rehnquist swore me in as president. After the swearing-in, a luncheon in the Capitol, and their traditional inaugural parade down Pennsylvania Avenue, I went to the Oval Office for the first time as president. 
Dad had gone upstairs to the White House residence to take a warm bath and thaw out from the frigid parade. But when the ushers told him that the president was waiting for him in the Oval Office, he hopped out, put on a suit, and came down. After a few minutes, the door swung open, and he walked in. We spent a few minutes together, just soaking in the moment. Over the next eight years, I would have many memorable meetings in the Oval Office. None compared to standing in the office with my father on my first day. I was fortunate enough to be invited to the opening of the George W. Bush Presidential Library at SMU, and when 41 spoke, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Long ago, Lieutenant George Bush had narrowly escaped death in the Pacific. For the next 70 years, he made the most of the life God had spared. He and my mother raised and loved six children. He served his fellow citizens at the highest level, striving above all to advance the cause of peace. He lived a life of faith, devoted to his family. In the winter of 2012, when he was still in a weakened state, I reminded him that my presidential library was scheduled to open the following April. I'll be there, son, he said. Sure enough, on a beautiful sunny day in Dallas, the current and former presidents gathered at SMU. George H.W. Bush was there. He had battled through the illness and regained his strength. He was in his wheelchair, sitting tall. When it was his turn to speak, his voice was strong. It's a great pleasure to be here to honor our son, our oldest son, he said, trying to control his emotions. This is very special for Barbara and me. We're glad to be here. God bless America, and thank you very much. The crowd gave him a standing ovation. I cherished the moment, which a few months earlier had seemed like an unlikely dream. Then he turned to me. Too long, he asked with a twinkle in his eye. Perfect, Dad, I said. And right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just six ninety-five a month. That's more than half off the regular price. Go to audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500-500 to get started. You can get 41, A Portrait of My Father by George W. Bush and many other amazing Audible titles. Audible, because words matter.